Morning. I'm being a bit rebellious again this morning, John. Worst John, forgive me. I'm, I'm carrying on with Isaiah 40 um, because there's so much to say in this chapter. It, it, it's just such a wonderful chapter. I repeat what I said last week, that my favorite piece of scripture is the, the piece I'm reading at the moment. And when you start getting into something, it, it, it's, uh, it unfolds before you and it's, it's a wonderful experience. I don't like the phrase uh, that says, look deeper into the word of God, because it implies mystery, stuff hidden. Um, God isn't hiding things, he's revealing things. I don't like the phrase deeper, but I do like the phrase wider. You know, look around, when you read a scripture, uh, look around it and see what else it's saying, and see how things come together, because it's wonderful to see the way the scriptures patch together and, and give one whole story that carries on. And Isaiah 40 is, is one of those verses that almost is like a pivot in the Bible where everything sort of swings around. Last week, Jean described uh, Isaiah as a mini version of the whole Bible. You know, it's, and certainly Isaiah 40 is the start of the New Testament and Isaiah, end of Isaiah 39, the start of the end of the Old Testament. And we're going to carry on reading it with that very much in mind. So just to remind you, Isaiah 1 to 39 is mainly history with prophecy in it, but it's based upon a historical narrative of saying what was happening. And it takes us up to the time when uh, Jerusalem has now been besieged by the Assyrians and has been miraculously delivered. How that happened is another story, but that's where it is. And Isaiah 40 is written after that miraculous escape for Jerusalem. But remember, the northern kingdom has been taken into captivity by the Assyrians. So it's not uh, an empty threat that they face. And I I have this picture of Isaiah and Hezekiah sitting down um, in this period of time, just after the uh, deliverance of Jerusalem, but the, the fall of Samaria. The other thing, the end of Isaiah 39, they are told that the same fate will happen to them, that Jerusalem will be um, destroyed and taken into captivity, as it happened by the Babylonians, but they were told this is going to happen. So it's a bleak place for them. They've been delivered, that's great, but the armies are coming back, that's not so good. And Isaiah 40 opens up with this amazing, amazing change uh, the language changes, it changes from text to poetry. The whole thing changes and opens up with that wonderful uh, statement, Comfort ye my people, which last week I, I used Handel to help us understand the, um, how it came across. Uh, this week we could play more Handel or I could read from Josephus. Um, I think I'm going to read from Josephus and play Handel during the meal, if that's okay. <laughs> so we have this fantastic, um, almost... It's like a, a breaking in. It's, it's, it's like there's, there's this history, this, this where is it going, what's going to happen? And then Isaiah breaks into this and rips it open and, and comes shouting out with this new theme, this whole new approach. Comfort you, my people, comfort ye. Because why? Not because of what you've done, but because I'm God. That's all he's saying. I'm God, that should be enough. Comfort ye, my people. Now let's just read... Um, this part of Isaiah 40. Now, so much we could go into here. I I'm, was really tempted to look at some of the structure of this and to sort of show it you as a poem, 
Um, but just take it from me, it's poetry. Uh, we'll be here all night if we look at this. The, one of the things to look at for the, for the poetic shape of Hebrew and, and the Bible is, is repetition. Something is said, it's said again, and then unpacked. It's said, it's said again, and unpacked. That sort of um, theme. And you've got that happening here in Isaiah 40. So think of Isaiah, think of Hezekiah um, sitting in a room. Um, yes, they've been miraculously delivered, but they've been told, it's, you know, you, this, this nation is going to be taken into captivity. Um, I, Hezekiah is very tired. He's just recovered from a very serious illness. Um, they're sitting there, and then God brings them this word. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground should become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord should be revealed and all flesh shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Basically, that's the only explanation you need. God has said. And then we have another repeat. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flowering of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades where the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. And then we come back to the, the same theme repeated where it says the, the word of the Lord stands forever. But the word of the God will stand forever. And there we get the unpacking bit. Get you to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Of course, Isaiah wrote this, and the wonderful thing about Isaiah is that we have many old copies of it written and buried clearly before the time of Jesus. Um, at the end of the 18th, 19th centuries, and early 20th centuries, there was great academic um, beliefs and statements that uh, all this was written by the Christians in the uh, first century to Rome, and it was all this, that, and the other. And then in 1947, they dug up the Nag Hammani caves and the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we've got co um, copies of Isaiah written uh, and buried hundreds of years before Jesus, and we, we've now found these. So this was written hundreds of years before Jesus, okay? How long, we're not sure, but it's, it's, it's reliable. What does it mean, behold your God? Why should you take comfort? Here are three statements that you should take, you should take comfort. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Behold your God. Well, we have that clearly, um, beautifully explained to us by the New Testament. In the New Testament, you, you, if, I, if I say to you there are four Gospels, yeah, you'll forgive me for making, making the obvious, there are four Gospels. Three of those Gospels are very similar, we call them the synoptics, and one is very, very different, the Gospel of John. All four Gospels start with the same theme. 
And that of itself is something. All four start, they all have differences, but they all introduce you to Jesus through the theme of John the Baptist. All four. And incidentally, just as an aside, all four report John the Baptist as describing Jesus as the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. So all four Gospels start by introducing Jesus as the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know more about that, I have a book at the back, but we'll, we'll come to that later. But the important thing is all four start in this same place. So who was John the Baptist? Well, of course, all four Gospels talk about John the Baptist. But I'm going to give you a little aside because I I find this uh, amusing. About AD 37, there was just a few years after Jesus uh, was crucified, A young man, a young Jewish man, uh, was born in Jerusalem. His father was a priest. His mother was a member of the sort of aristocracy, so he was quite well born. Um, And he had a lovely Jewish name, but you will probably know him historically as Josephus. And Josephus then was a young, very clever academic guy who um, was clearly very, very clever. And um, also in his own writings, reports that he was very, very clever. So uh, we have it on his own account that he was very, very clever. Um, he, he wrote three works, which we still have. One is very, very long, which is called The Antiquities of the Jews, a shorter one called The War of the Jews, and one he wrote um, complaining about the Greek philosophy, but we won't go into that one. Um, the, the, most, the best known two are uh, The Antiquities of the Jews, which is a very, very long history. He became, his, his, his life is uh, very, very interesting, but he ended up being a, basically a Roman historian. So he dies in Rome at AD 100, uh, being a sort of historian to the, to the Jewish, uh, sorry, to the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperors wanted to know, what's all this about the Jews? Um, because they're, they're, they had armies in the Middle East, they had wars going on in the Middle East, they had wars going on over Jerusalem. Not a lot's changed, is it? Um, that was still going on there. And the Roman emperors were saying, who are these Jews? And Josephus was obviously told to write a history. So he, he writes a very detailed history of the Jews, which is very long. So if you want to read it, I suggest you either put a lot of time to one side or be selective about what you read. However, in his history, he writes this. And he would be writing this about A.D. 80, um, possibly round about the same time that the Gospels were being put together and written, but a little bit later. But the, the idea that he had access to the Gospels is, is nuts. Um, he never had access to the Gospels. They were clearly being put together in the Middle East. He's in Rome. And this is happening at the same time. In those days, they didn't have text and email, um, so they weren't flashing backwards and forwards to each other. So these are entirely separate um, references. So this is, I just take this out of Josephus's, for those of you who want to know, this is chapter 18, um, book, book 18, chapter 5, verses 2 onwards from Josephus. Now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God. We won't talk about that, that's just history. And that very justly as a punishment for what he did against John. John, that is, who was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him. He was a good man and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, 
and so to come to baptism. For with the washing of water, that would be acceptable to God if they made use of it, not in order to put away their sins, uh, but as purification of the body. Supposing that the son, he goes on. So you have a little bit of John's theology there. You know that John the Baptist existed. You know that John the Baptist was baptizing people. And you know that John the Baptist was teaching, um, behaving right to one another and towards God. And this is independently, completely from Josephus. So you, you can't argue about that. Do you want to know what Josephus said about Jesus? It's not nothing to do with, it's just serendipitous, but it's interesting. So, okay. Um, in book 18, chapter 3 and verse 3, uh, Josephus writes about Jesus. Now, this is a little bit more problematical because lots and lots of copyists ever since have added to what Josephus originally wrote. And if you read the academics, they fall into two groups. Those who say this was mendacious, in other words, they were trying to, to change what we think, and those who were saying, don't be silly, this is just comments. Um, if you go back to the original text and look at some of the original text, it's pretty obvious it was comments. It's written in different pen. I mean, it, it's, um, it's, they've got what Josephus said, and some monk has written above it in a different pen um, some uh, explanation of, of what, what Josephus said. So let's, I'm going to read you now what the academics say is the very bare minimum that Josephus wrote about Jesus. Now, there was about this time Jesus... A wise man, for he was a doer of wonders. He drew many after him. When Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him um, did at first not forsake him. And the tribe of Christians, so named from him, are not extinct at this day. In other words, they still exist today. And he's writing this round about 80 AD. But this tells us, an uh, independent witness being Josephus, Pilate had him crucified. And that after his death, his followers um, continued to follow him. Now, obviously, in some of the added bits, they, it, it says um, they followed him because he rose from the dead. And people have said this has been added. But that is pretty clear. That's what Josephus wrote. Um, in book 20, two books later on, he writes this. Uh, and again, history first in the explanation. Festus was now dead and Albinus was but on the same road. In other words, pretty sick. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he, did the, he delivered them to be stoned, which is what we have in Acts. But here you've got uh, Josephus saying, yes, there was a guy called Jesus. Yes, he was known as the Christ. He had a brother called James who was stoned, which is what we've got in Acts. So uh, the history, when you start looking wider, it's fascinating. You see all these other histories coming in, um, supporting the, the story of, of Jesus. I'd love to talk about the Kamani Gospels, but we haven't got time. But there's more there. So we have this guy. John the Baptist, who was attested to by history. Um, and we have references to him in, in four Gospels. And in the four Gospels, John the Baptist is reported to say, I am the voice that was crying in the wilderness. This is me. So this part of Isaiah 40, a voice cries, that's John the Baptist. John the Baptist says it was him, and the Gospels uh, affirm that it was him. 
So we can now refer this to what John says in um, his, his story. So, in the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord, make straight... So, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, that clearly now is Jesus, according to John the Baptist. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley should be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low, and uneven ground should become level, the rough places plain. Remember, this is poetry, so don't get too trapped in with the detail of this says this and this says that. It's a, it's a big mistake many Bible interpreters make. This is poetry. Read it as poetry. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So we have this repeated then, then we have this frame, this phrase at the end. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. And this is just telling us all, get up there and declare. To a high mountain is where the city was. Get up there and shout this. Let everybody know. Lift up your voice with strength. And what are we supposed to say? Behold your God. Behold your God. And there are many people who say the New Testament doesn't say Jesus is God. The Bible never clearly declares Jesus is God. Oh, rubbish, of course it does. Many, many times in many, many ways. But always slightly subtly. So here, as you follow this train of thought through, the voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Very clearly talking about Jesus And the last part of this stanza, of this poem, ends with this, Behold your God. So John is pointing to Jesus and saying, Behold your God. And every Jewish child um, who who heard John the Baptist would have known Isaiah 40 off by heart. You know, it was like they knew it. So when, when John the Baptist says, Behold, I am the voice in the wilderness, click, they all hear, Wow. He's pointing to Jesus. He's saying he's God. Behold your God. So why do, we, why do we take comfort from these words? Comfort ye my people. Because the Lord has said it. Because he is our God. And we can unpack the theology and spend years unpacking the theology, both personally and um, intellectually. But at the end of the day, no. The answer is to trust God. It comes down to trust. Trust him and the rest will be revealed. There's some wonderful debates on the internet sometimes about the accuracy of theology and how accurate should our theology be. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm wedded to theology, as probably you know. Um, I, I, I'm a medical doctor by training, but also a theologian. I've got an MA in theology, so I, I've been trained as a theologian as well. My heart is in the theology. When you come down to asking a simple question, who should we fellowship with? Is it those who have the same theology as us? Now, I think theology is important, and I I see so many errors in it, and I I, want to get out there and correct some of the very bad thinking that's out there. But Jesus told us to love who? Those who get their theology correct? No. No. It's not that. We should be in fellowship with those who are trying to follow Jesus, basically. We love everybody, but who should we be in fellowship with? Those who are trying to follow Jesus. Now, some of them are trying very badly. Sorry. (laughs) And some of them are very confused. Sorry, they are. I humbly submit. I'm as bad as Josephus, aren't I? He he, he wrote, uh, we won't go there, but he he wrote about himself. (laughs) 
our hearts should be to be in fellowship with those who are trying to follow God because everything we know comes by God's grace and his revelation to us not by our clever, intellectual understanding of very fine points of scripture that we really are in a different language to us in the first place. And one of the big traps, as you've seen here, is the taking of poetry and trying to treat it like logic and science. It isn't. It's poetry. Read it like poetry. Then then a lot of the arguments go away. We should be in fellowship with those who are seeking to follow truth, to follow Jesus. What's the time? Well, I'm going to get on the hobby horse if I'm not careful. Okay, let's come back to, to, to Isaiah 40. What is it then is the message? What's the key message of Isaiah 40? The first one, comfort ye my people. This is grace. This is, this is, you, you receive comfort by God's grace. It's a gift. Now what should you do? Well, this is actually quite challenging when you read it again. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, I, I'm not going to argue with those people who talk about the last days and the second coming and, and, and the end of Jerusalem. And I've heard so many times this is a, prophet, a prophecy about le- leveling the desert and putting roads through it. And you go there today and there are roads through the desert. And they, yeah, I've been there and driven up them. Yeah, okay, there are motorways now going through the desert. They've done all this. It's all happened. That's not what this means, is it? John the Baptist said this to the people who were there. And he said, do it now. It's talking about you. It's talking about us. It's talking about our lives. The rough places are your rough places. The crooked ways are your crooked ways. Josephus says that John the Baptist was calling people to living a pious and right life. If you can't accept the Bible, then accept Josephus if you have to. I'd rather go with the Bible. But there is the message. We are called to live a righteous life. And John the Baptist opens up with grace. Comfort ye, my people, in God's gift. But you have to work at this as well. You are responsible for helping God to lower the high places in your life. Raise the low places, straighten out the wonky places. And there is, a, there is a Christian place, a Christian view of yourself, which God is trying to call us into, which is to, to assess ourselves, but not be judgmental upon ourselves. Because God says, I have comforted you, I have forgiven you, I have accepted you. That doesn't mean to say that you can go out there and do just what you like. It doesn't mean to say that you're not responsible for the low places in your life, the high places in your life, the rough places in your life, and the crooked places in your life. Straighten them out. Sort them out. With God's help. But do it without judging yourself. Do it without judging other people. It's like, look at the desert. There's a hole. Fill it up. Don't judge it for having a hole. Just fill it up. Okay? There's a mountain in your way, in the desert. Well, knock it down. Don't judge it for being there. Knock it down. And when you come to look at and judge people, you often find it's more complicated than you think. 
I have to hold my hand up at the moment and say I'm just being called to jury service. I'm sitting on a rather complex case as a juror at the moment. But yeah, it gets more complicated than you think. How do we assess? Well, here's the challenge to ourselves. Sit before God. Don't judge yourself. Don't see yourself as a failure. Don't see yourself as not having achieved or whatever. Put all that to one side. But sit before God and say, but I am going to straighten out the, rough, the, the crooked places. I am going to make the high places low. John the Baptist was a preacher of righteousness. And this is what he was saying to the people that came before him. The baptism that he gave was not to bring you to salvation, as even Josephus admits. It was a token of the effort that you have made. It was a badge, basically, that said, you've done it. My daughter's nuts. I keep, I keep telling her she's nuts. Um, as, 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 as many of you know, she had a very serious cancer just a year ago. Last week, she went and ran a marathon. Not with my blessing, but she did it. And she came back and has a badge. I have run the Newport Marathon. I called her an idiot, but she has the badge. Having the badge is not the issue, it's running the marathon. The badge is just a symbol of having run the marathon. The baptism that John gave was a symbol of the effort to make the rough places low and the high play below. That was a symbol of that. That's what he was saying. The issue was that you are doing it. How are we doing in this? We have a task before us. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. That's you. Here, herald of good news. That's you. You're heralding the good news of Jesus. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. This is us. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. This is what we're called to do. We're saved by grace. But God looks to us to make the work and make the effort. We should be giving our hearts, our time, our finances... We should be giving that which we have to help, help in the heralding of that cry. Behold your God. The rest of Isaiah 40 goes into even more poetry. But I'm going to end by reading the last part, which I ended with last week, or well, two weeks ago. Have you not known, have you not heard, that the everlasting God... The Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not, neither is he weary. There is no searching his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them who have no might, he increases their strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Get up on a mountain and declare, Behold your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us your message. 
for giving us a word of comfort that we, failures, weaknesses, holes, valleys, crooked ways and rough things that we are, you have called us and promised us comfort. You've called us and promised to equip us. Help us to submit ourselves to your hand, not to judge ourselves, but to receive your loving kindness, your discipline, your chastisement. It's all for our benefit so that we can declare, behold our God. Amen.